Our second scripture lesson this morning is from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Hear now the word of the Lord. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone, for kings and all who are in high positions, so that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and dignity. This is right and is acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, there is also one mediator between God and humankind, Christ Jesus, himself human, who gave himself as a ransom for all. This was attested at the right time. For this, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and in truth. This too is the word of God for the people of God. I'm sure that most of you know that I hail from Western Pennsylvania, and I am quite proud to be from Pittsburgh. It is a unique city of rivers and bridges and unpretentious Rust Belt people and pierogies and arts and innovation. I love it. Pittsburgh, it also has a pretty distinct regional dialect. Now, I have never really felt like I have a Pittsburgh accent, which quite often tops the list of the most unpleasant American accents. But I do, on occasion, use some Pittsburghese. For example, I will call a shopping cart a buggy and call a rubber band a gum band. Just weird things that we say in Pittsburgh. But one Pittsburghese that I never use is yins. Yins is basically well, it's how many Western Pennsylvanians refer to a group of people. <clears throat> Are yins going down to the Pens game? I have never been a yinzer, but when my local friends found out that I was taking a job in Atlanta, they often said that I was trading my yins for y'all. And I didn't really have the heart to tell them that I had been using y'all for a long time, even as a proud Pittsburgher. Because aside from just sounding way nicer than yins, y'all is, is kind of the perfect way to address a group of people. It is gender neutral, it is pleasant, it works for two or 20 or 200 people. It's perfectly inclusive. It is definitely something that y'all do right. Now, the author of First Timothy, the text says Paul, but we're pretty certain that Paul had nothing to do with this. Um, but anyway, the author is really concerned with y'all, not with y'all, but he's concerned with everyone. He is writing to Timothy, sure, but all of these instructions, they concern everybody. The passage uses the phrase pantos anthropos a couple times, which is Greek for all people. According to 1 Timothy, all people should be prayed for. All people should be saved. God is God of all people. Christ died as a ransom for all people, and Paul proclaims this truth to all people. Everything, all of these instructions deal with y'all. And first up is prayer. Supplications, prayers, 
intercessions and thanksgivings be made for Pontas Anthropus, for everyone. Pray for everyone, which in the abstract doesn't seem like a very daunting task. Dear God, we pray for all of the people of the world. Amen. Simple enough, right? Well, apart from being pretty cursory, I think that the author of 1 Timothy has something more genuine and more meaningful in mind. The text is asking for people to make a real effort, for real hearts to be put into praying for all people. Ask God for things on their behalf. Express your gratitude for their existence. Really talk to God about them. That is not so simple. Verse 2 then makes particular note of kings and folks with authority, people in positions of leadership. Make sure you pray for them. Make sure you pray for them especially so that we may all lead a quiet and peaceable life. Pray for your leadership, not just the candidate you would have preferred or the leader you agree most with, but all of them. At the time 1 Timothy was written, largely Christians were being persecuted by people in power, which would have made this instruction all the more difficult, but also all the more important as well. You pray for your leadership because they have the greatest sphere of influence. There is potential for massive change. First Timothy, it does not call for rebellion or for revolution, but rather transformation. And there is, I think, another reason to pray for kings and for rulers, especially if you disagree with them. In verse 2, it connects ruler, praying for rulers with living quiet and peaceable lives in godliness and dignity. And I'm not sure that what First Timothy is suggesting is that through prayer we stop kings and rulers from making bad decisions or doing things we find unpleasant, but I do think, well, I believe that we ourselves are changed by prayer. Perhaps we do not change the course of history when we pray for the president, but certainly something is transformed in us when we bring people to God in prayer. Early church father John Chrysostom wrote that no one can feel hatred towards those for whom he prays. Now, I will say that when I suggested that to some of my colleagues earlier in the week, I was met with a, maybe. And they aren't wrong. It's hard to imagine um, praying for some some leaders or rulers who hold hateful ideologies or feeling some measure of affection for them. But I believe that prayer moves us more towards this reality. I believe that we hope in the truth that we are transformed by prayer, that our hearts are changed by the time that we spend in conversation with God on behalf of others. And in that transformation, we are sent out to act. And if this is true of and important for the prayers we offer for the kings and for the rulers, it is also true for the prayer we offer for everyone, for Pontas Anthropus. If we are transformed by our time spent in prayer and we are meant to offer prayer for all people, then our posture before humanity should be something. We ought to view all people through the lens of God's creation. We are all made by God and therefore are all beloved. And if we can see all people that way, then we can also treat them as beloved. 
I think that this is what it means by that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and dignity. Because if we are behaving towards all others in a way that reflects their belovedness before God, then of course we are experiencing peace and dignity in life. This, of course, is hard, if not nearly impossible. But then that is why we pray for all people. We pray for them in the hopes that in so doing we will all be transformed and that we all may take a step closer to this reality. Prayer transforms us from anger and division to peace. First Timothy, it then moves on from prayer to talk about salvation. Verses 3 and 4 say, This is right and is acceptable in the sight of our God, our Savior, who desires everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. God desires for everyone, Pontos Anthropus, to be saved. And admittedly, this makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable because it feels like an invitation to, for lack of a better word, crusade, to run amok far and wide converting people to Christianity because God desires for everyone to be saved. The history of the Christian church is littered with horror stories stemming from an effort to save people. I heard it said once that the crusaders, they didn't lack love, In fact, they truly believed that burning folks at the stake gave them this opportunity to convert so that they could be saved. And isn't that the greatest act of love that you could give someone? Yeah, I think that's a pretty serious distortion of what 1 Timothy is getting at. And I suppose we could, if you want, get into a discussion about who exactly all these people being saved are. We could talk about predestination and election I could compare, could compare Origen and Thomas Aquinas and John Calvin, but I don't, I don't really want to, and I'm not really sure that that matters in the context of this sermon or for 1 Timothy chapter 2. I think that the most important truth to be found here is that God desires to know, to be in relationship with all of humanity, with all people, It is the will of God that humankind be returned to their creator. And what is implicit within that truth is that God loves all people, none more than another. The overarching story of the Bible is God's relationship with humanity. We follow the covenant with Abraham and the people of Israel, which promises that through that covenant, all of creation will be blessed. And we watch it open over the course of the biblical narrative to include others. You read the, prophet and the prophets and see in God's involvement with nations apart from Israel. And then Jesus turns up and he lives and dies um, this once-for-all death. And in his resurrection, he commissions his disciples to teach everyone everywhere about it so that all may know and believe And then Paul enters the picture, and while 1 Timothy wasn't written by Paul, we know that Paul was called to preach to the Gentiles, the non-Jews of the world. Time marches on, and God is at work making good on the promise made at the beginning. So when 1 Timothy says, pantas anthropus, we really do mean all people. What I think 1 Timothy is really getting at here is that God in Christ erases the dividing lines that exist between us 
and unites us. Prayer is a tool that practices and reinforces that belief. We are all beloved. We are all children of God, and we need to act on that. We know, however, that there are plenty of times that all has been said, but all wasn't really what was meant. All men are created equal was written by a slave owner in 1776. Liberty and justice for all was written in 1892 during Jim Crow laws and when women didn't have the right to vote. All lives matter is a refrain often used to, uh, in a response to movements like Black Lives Matter. Um, all lives matter as long as you aren't undocumented or gay or poor or perhaps most importantly appear to be threatening when stopped by the police. There is this tendency to throw around the word all casually, to use it when there are clear exclusions. And First Timothy is not casual. Pantas Anthropus is not casual. All means all. Last month at the Presbytery meeting at Memorial Drive, a group had an information table where they were also selling t-shirts. And the t-shirt said, y'all means all. And how fitting for that, uh, those shirts to be on a campus who opens wide its doors to refugees from dozens of countries, who at its very core works to embody this belief we find in First Timothy that all people matter to God. So what about the church then? Does its y'all mean all? Many churches proclaim that all are welcome here on their signs and in their bulletins and at the top of their worship services, but in reality, in practice, that often includes an implied asterisk. Except conservatives, or gays, or people of color, people experiencing homelessness, people experiencing mental illness, children who are loud, the list goes on. Now, I have to say that I think that Morningside is exceptional at meaning all. This church really stands firm in its identity as a place of welcome and acceptance and hospitality, and I am constantly bowled over by the warmth that exists in this community. But of course, we are not perfect. It is my hope that you will spend some time thinking about what our asterisk is. Who are we consciously or unconsciously leaving out of our y'alls? Who do we forget? Who do we find it difficult to include? And you know what to do about that, right? Once you've thought it through, pray for them. Offer supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings on their behalf, and be changed. And then let's find a way to do better, to open our doors and our arms and our hearts even wider. God loves y'all. And y'all are welcome here. Amen.